Okay, very excited today here to be talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is a film that has a kind of has a definite mystique about it. Like it's not considered I'm trying to think, you know, it's not necessarily one of the best movies of all time for a lot of people, but you know, it's not like with not with the Casablanca, you know, Schindler's list were on those lists, but it's definitely one of those almost maybe like an early cult classic kind of thing. But a little more mainstream than okay. a cult classic. I don't know. How how do you view Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I just know it as a as a, one of the like classic westerns. Okay, okay. But I don't know. But that might also be. I wonder if like the way that we have like the way that we categorize the movie as far as prestige in our heads is different just because of our age difference. Well, it predates both of our births. I mean, it's an old movie. No, no, I, I know. But I'm saying like it would have been newer like for you when you were growing up. If you would have, wa- I don't know if you watched it when you were growing up at all. No, so that's another thing too. I probably didn't watch it until I was an adult. Okay, yeah. So like by the time I saw it, though, it had been out for almost uh, probably about forty years. And so it, like by the time I saw it, it was like, oh, it's that classic western, you know, Paul Newman, Robert Redford movie. Right. No, I, I, I was, I was that. That's how I saw it too. I mean, I didn't grow up with this movie. I when I saw it, it was already you know thirty, thirty five years old. So yeah. So I mean, I saw it. Uh, okay. When it was already several decades old and kind of had its mystique. Because since you're you're more a Western guy than I am, so how does this one rank for you? Like, is this is this uh, kind of like uh, it's solid or like big fan? Yeah, it's oh, it's solid. Yeah, I I like it a lot. It's um, I I love the the dialogue, the banter between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. It's really good. It's, uh, like one of my favorite Western scenes of all time is when they're getting ready to jump off the cliff, and they have that real quick back and forth. Yes, about jumping off the cliff, and you know, do you want to die? Do you? Oh, you know, we're gonna die anyway. And then he's like, oh, I can't swim. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that exchange. But yeah, it's good. It is. I will say it is a pretty 60s movie. Yes. It definitely f- looks and feels like it's this. It, it, it's not like, a, hang on, I'm trying to think of an example here of a movie that actually feels like you're looking back into like the 1800s. Or even something like The Prestige that we did recently. Yeah, okay. That's okay. That's that's a good example. Even though it's not a western, that's a good example. So, when you watch a prestige, it's like, "Oh, like I in my brain, it's almost like I'm just looking through this portal back to this old time." Versus in this movie, it's like, "Oh, I'm definitely watching people in the 60s pretending to be in the 1800s." Just like in Tombstone, I love Tombstone so much, but it's definitely just people in the 1990s pretending to be in the 1870s. That's a good way to put it. I I like that. Basically, what I'm getting at here, I didn't want to crap on the movie before you did, or before, or if you were going to be like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, that I was going to crap on it first. So my note was like, this movie is both amazing and also overrated at the same time. Because it shows up on a lot of all-time lists, I feel like. Like, everyone loves Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. And to your point, it has some amazing all-time moments. The dialogue, the banter is awesome. The the fight scene where he kind of, you know, rules, there's no rules in a knife fight. Like, all that stuff is so cool. Yeah. The, the ending is, you know, super, super iconic. One of the best final shots of any movie ever. But <laughs> there's a lot of just what is going on. This makes no sense. Why is this bicycle scene in here <laughs> with the song? Oh my the gosh. Song, the, the music is so anachronistic to be as to be laughable. Okay. That's actually, I, I actually have that in my notes specifically to bring up. So that song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, that won the Oscar. 
Everyone's right. Everyone's heard that song. Yes. That song was written for this movie. Right. That makes no sense. It's so bizarre. Okay. I never knew that until I did the research for this. And actually, I didn't even remember that that song was even in the movie. Same. Until I rewatched it, and I was like, I don't remember this song being in here. I was like, this is so. This is so weird. What a strange scene. And it's like, not only did they put that, make the choice to put that song in the movie. That song was written for the movie, and apparently Robert Redford hated it. Right. And said, this is dumb. This Why is it? There's no rain in the scene. What the hell are, is this guy even talking about? And, and just tonally, the song is so off. Right. Also, tonally, it's super off. It it doesn't fit. It, it's a, it doesn't fit in, like, the Western, you know, vibe context. But then, I guess, it, so I, I saw a quote. It's actually on the Wikipedia page from Robert Redford where he's talking about, like, I hated the song. It doesn't, you know, it, tonally, it's off. But then he said, but, you know, I must have been mistaken because it was a huge hit and made a bunch of money. And I'm like, no, Robert Redford, you're absolutely right. Just because it made a bunch of money and was a huge hit doesn't mean that it was the right choice. That was 100% my reaction when I read that same quote. Was that? Yeah. Uh, and, I, and actually, even a lot of it. So, like, I feel like today it has this reputation as just this all-time classic. You can't go wrong with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But then we read a lot of the, re- the reviews from, like, 1969. I'm like, uh-huh. they were very mixed. And I'm like, so I'm, re- I'm reading the reviews from the time. I'm like, yes, I agree with that. I don't understand the mystique and the prestige that surrounds it today. Again, there's some definite iconic moments, but it, it almost just needs to be cut down. Take out the bicycle scene. Take out some yeah. other stuff. Like I said, the music doesn't really fit. Also, there's not really great character development, honestly. It, it's just kind of like they're cool characters, but there's no there's no arc. That I, I think is, that's the biggest thing is... Paul Newman and Robert Redford, especially at this time in the late 60s, were just so damn cool. Right. Like, the the actors themselves were just so cool. And they just, like, exude this confidence and this charisma on screen that you can't help but just, like, love these dudes when you're watching them. And it's like, so even when you put them, the rest of the movie around them is pretty mid, to be honest. But right. the two of them, and especially the two of them together and, like, bouncing off of each other, it's just so cool and fun to watch that it, like, it just makes up for the rest of the movie. I, but I, I think you're right. I think if if the issues were fixed, I think if if the movie itself was just a little bit better, I think it would be, like, yes. an all-time prestige, like, big-time prestige classic. Whereas today, I think you're right, it probably is more of a cult classic. But man, they're like their performances are just so good, and they're both just so cool. Right. What what it makes me think of is they're essentially George Clooney and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Where it's just like, gosh, right. dang, I can watch these guys all day. Yeah, that is a good comparison because it's like you know in the in the nineties, early two thousands, it that's like the same thing. It's like the two biggest, coolest movie stars, the biggest A listers, you know, are in this movie together, and. Today, I don't even know what the comparison would be. Right. Like, I'm tempted to say George Clooney and Brad Pitt, but like, you know, just because that's like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, er- early 2000s is kind of like my my baseline <laughs> <laughs> for movies like that. But yeah, I, I don't even know what, what it would be today. Right. There, I don't even... I don't even think it, it necessarily exists. Well, that talk, that, that's something that we see now today, too, with the internet age in general, where they're, you know, they always talk about back in the day, you know, with MASH and all that stuff. There's only three channels. There was fewer celebrities. There was no internet. So everyone had the same celebrities to choose from. Nowadays, there's infinite celebrities to choose from. And so no one right. no one can be as famous today as you could have back then. 
Also worth noting, though, too, like this was actually Redford's breakout role. So he, this is what made him a star versus him already being a big star. Yeah, that's true. Like Red, like, like uh, Newman was. So yeah, the movie is a ninety slash ninety two on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, there were kind of mixed reviews at at the time, which kind of fit more what I would feel about it today. But yeah, I mean, it was a success at the time. Seven Oscar nominations, including shoot, it won for screenplay, cinematography, uh, score, and original song. Uh, which is like we said, the raindrops keep falling on my head that has no business being in this movie. Um, but it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, uh, and Sound. I even wrote, how the F did this win Best Song? <laughs> it's a fine song, but like, it's just so out of place. Well, yeah, that's what I was to say. It's, the song is a classic. Everyone knows that song. Everyone's heard that song. Like, the song is a classic. And it's like, I, it's okay. Like, I think it's fine. It's, it's an okay song. Obviously, at the time, it was super popular and like, everybody knows it right but it is weird that it wins the oscar for best song despite it not fitting in the movie where it's supposed to go that's kind of weird so like if you're if you're on if you're in the academy that year (laughs) it's like are you voting on okay it's like okay even like let's say you love the song it's like man i really love this song but it it's not for this movie do you still give it the oscar for best song if you like the song but you don't like how it's used in the movie Right, and, and I don't. I just think the most recent winner, with of course RRR, was my favorite movie from last year. But like the whole, yeah. how Natu Natu is like integral to the plot of that film. Right. The song advances yeah. the plot. Right. Yeah. And also, though, too, again, we, this is just a weird time in Hollywood, though, too. So 1969, you're, you're you're at the end of the Hayes Code, which this movie's still PG. It's not necessarily walking the line there, although it is a little bit. With I mean, we kind of yeah, there, there's some. Uh, they don't necessarily violate the Hayes Code, but they're they're definitely up, you know, walking the line maybe more so than movies would have just two years earlier. Sure. But then also we are the whole pre-Spielberg and Lucas thing we kind of always talk about where movies were just at a different pace. So audiences and critics in the late 60s did just kind of have a different expectation going into films. And so almost like, I almost feel like they saw, oh, this is a quaint little diversion to this wonderful song in the middle of a Western. Isn't that neat and original? Versus right. we're like, what is this crap? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing that's really interesting too, we think about the banter and that this is a William Goldman screenplay. So he's Princess Bride. So you think about the Princess right. Bride and some of that banter. And I'm like, you can, you can kind of see it. Oh, again, right. Yeah. Some of some of the best dialogue in film is in Princess Bride, and it's endlessly quotable. Right. Yeah. And very similar to a lot of the dialogue we get here. It, I almost think, I almost kind of think the director is the biggest problem here. George, George Roy Hill is, I feel like, the problem here. And what else is... I, I haven't even... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look right now while we're talking. Well, The Sting is the only other one I know off the top of my head because it was with these same two guys that won Best Picture just three years later. Another one that doesn't hold up super well. It's just kind of an okay caper kind of thing. Oh, you don't like the sting? No, it's fine. And I remember, I remember really liking it the first time, and then I was excited to rewatch it, and I was just like, "Oh, all right, <laughs> like it's fine." Okay, see, I've I've only seen it, I've only seen it probably two times, but I haven't seen it in okay at least fifteen years. I just remember being really excited to rewatch it, and then thought it was just okay. Okay, I remember really liking it the first time I saw it, but again, that was a long time ago. But I, I also remembered really liking this movie the first time yeah, I watched it. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe my brain just like it, like uh, 
it, it suppressed the memory of that song. You, we're, we're just mesmerized by the blue eyes of uh, Paul Newman, and then I, like, I get yeah, yeah, yeah it, like hypnotodes us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so William Goldman apparently too. So this movie actually is fairly accurate in a lot of ways, and that actually goes to Goldman being stubborn because apparently earlier uh, attempts to get the film made. The studios were like, hey, we love this, but what's this crap with them going to Bolivia? You got to take that out. And Goldman refused. He's like, because they went to Bolivia. This really happened. And like he insisted on keeping those things in there and then finally was able to get it made. Ah, okay. Well, we're going to talk about the history, obviously, because well, yes. that's what we do on the show. Yes. But I was going to say that the the Bolivia stuff, to me, after reading the the actual history of these two guys it's like that's it honestly kind of seemed like a little bit of a half measure to me like why not just tell the story then but i i can see how maybe that was a compromise with the studio if the studio was like you need to cut that out like they just Mm. you know just keep them in wyoming or whatever like keep them in the u.s like just make it a western and he's like no they need to go to bolivia they need to do you know history says that they did this and this and this and maybe the what they ended up getting was a sort of compromise where they go to bolivia but it's not not all the way accurate. Okay. Um, and then my last note before I actually will we'll dive into some of the history here. I remember just, just sitting there watching it. I was like, oh, huh. Man, this really looks like Zion National Park. And then you look up afterwards, it's like, yeah, because that's Zion National Park. So I thought it was yeah. cool that I actually recognized it. And then, of course, we'll probably talk about it more here later, too. But, like, filming a lot of this movie in Utah is what inspired robert redford sundance kid himself to start the sundance film festival in utah and that's all uh not a coincidence and does go back to to this film oh see i didn't know that oh really i knew that i i knew that that the sundance was the same that well no because the sundance is it's not in it's not the town isn't in utah park city utah yeah it is no 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 no. the the sundance film festival is in park city but the town Sundance, where the Sundance Kid gets his name, is not oh, the same because that's correct. in that's in I think it's Wyoming. I gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, right, the film festival's named for the Redford character more than the historical figure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, the third to their duo, making it a trio, is uh, oh shoot, what's the character's name? Ella Etta or something. Etta. Etta. Yeah. Yeah. Place. So she's played by Catherine Ross who I'm not super familiar with, but she is like the main girl from The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, not Mrs. Robinson, but Mrs. Robinson's daughter. Like that whole iconic stuff in The Graduate is, that's Catherine Ross, who also is in Donnie Darko. She is his psychologist, I guess, that he goes to see. Is is also the same Catherine Ross, who I would never would have recognized. So I just thought that was cool that she has something a little more modern there too in her filmography. Isn't it funny that if you're playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or Six Degrees of Separation, whatever, that you can go from Catherine Ross to Seth Rogen in the same movie? Oh, wait, which one's that? Seth Rogen's in Donnie Darko as well. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, like a young, like a teenager Seth Rogen is one of the high school, like just like a side high schooler kid character. Oh, that's funny. I didn't, that is crazy. I didn't know that. Like, you know, uh, you know the scene in Donnie Darko? We're getting kind of way off topic here, but you know the scene in Donnie Darko where they're making fun of the the girl that says "cha up." Yeah. Okay. One of those guys is Seth Rogen. Okay, so I always think of his breakout being Freaks and Geeks, which would have been about the same time. Actually, Freaks and Geeks might have even been before uh, Donnie Darko, but uh, 
Have you seen Freaks and Geeks, by the way? <laughs> just a just a side note. Our side note. No, I I know, I know of it because I know like Seth Rogen and and uh, James Franco. Uh, and, James Franco. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Judd Apatow. Like that's basically like, how they all started was was Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I like I know I know of it. I've never I've never seen okay. it. Uh, I I recommend it. I recommend it. Where were we? <laughs> okay. Yes. So yeah, the the film itself does just follow these two real life outlaws, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford, in very iconic roles for both of them. I mean, you could argue it's maybe the best known character for each of them. Not necessarily. They're they're both pretty pretty famous actors in their own right. They don't necessarily have one character you think of, but it definitely followed them the rest of their career in a positive way. I would say. Yeah. Come back to this film. Um, and yeah, we just kind of see these two outlaws doing their thing. It almost seems very similar to like when we watched the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, how that's kind of the end of their career. That's kind of what we feel like here. These guys have been working for a while and then we kind of see them robbing some trains and the train company trying to fight back and run them out of town or capture them. And we, which we talked about, Did they, I, I forgot again, do they actually say the word Pinkerton in the film or no, I don't know that they actually did say pinkertons but it is the pinkertons that are chasing them yeah i don't i don't know and i don't i don't remember and i don't want to say yet i like i want to say yes but I, i'm not sure if that's because they actually say it in the movie or if just all the like videos and reading that i did afterwards talk about the same, Pinkertons so same. much that i am just like remembering that now i right. so i I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure i don't think it actually said pinkertons in the film but we just kind of know because they keep they keep referring to specific people like Joe LaForce and 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 those kinds of things. So I don't think they actually say Pinkertons in the film. Um, but in real life, yes, the railroad did hire the Pinkertons to to go after these guys. Um, and then they in the film flee to Bolivia by way of another weird montage of them hanging out in New York and playing around. So it's like, oh man, we got to get out of the country quick. Let's hang out and go to. Coney Island or whatever we're doing in New York and just kind of chill for a while, which I get they're waiting for a ship probably to go down to Bolivia. It just seemed kind of a bizarre. Another, and the, and the music doesn't fit there either. Yeah. And yeah, and then they go down to Bolivia and kind of become, uh, oh, shoot, what do they call them? The uh, Banditos Yankees. Yeah, Banditos yeah. Yankees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, so tell tell the audience here and me about the real life Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, if you could. All right, so... I'm going to start off doing some early life for both of them, and then I'll talk about them together, their their relationship. Okay, yeah. And then we'll get into uh, South America. That's that's kind of the outline of how this is going to go. So it's 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 a little complicated, and it's it's weird because there is so much mystique and legend around these two guys that it is well, and the fact that this was 120 plus years ago that it's nearly impossible to know what is true, mm. what is false, what's exaggerated. And just legend and yeah. Just like we were talking about with Jesse James. So you kind of take this all with a pinch of historical salt, I guess. <laughs> so Butch Cassidy, his real name was uh, Robert Leroy Parker, and he was born in Utah in 1866. Um, I think it's interesting that they, in the movie... It seems like Butch Cassidy is supposed to be kind of the older, more mature guy. And then the Sundance Kid is supposed to be kind of, you know, the younger guy. Right. 
But in reality, they were only a year apart in age. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Butch Cassidy was born in 1866, and the Sundance Kid was born in 1867. That's funny. They used to do that because I guess Newman and Redford are about 10 years apart, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I think they did that because of the actors. And the name, the kid, is you want to make him like the young, quick draw. Right. It would be weird if you have two guys and one of them is the kid, but he's only, you know, the one year younger. <laughs> but anyway, so Butch Cassidy, uh, he grew up working as a ranch hand in Utah. Looking at, I have a note on here, looking at pictures of the real guy of Robert Parker, Butch Cassidy, he looks a lot like the country singer Zach Bryan. Do you know who that is? I've heard the name, but again, I'm not in the music scene, especially not the country music scene. Okay, so like like a very like well-defined jawline, like big square jaw, okay. like square head. He, that's He looks like Zach Bryan. Huh. He started going by the name Cassidy after one of his mentors on the ranch. So there was another ranch hand that he kind of like looked up to and was mentoring him when he first started out on the ranch and that guy's last name was cassidy so he started using the last name cassidy okay the name butch it's not a hundred percent known where he got that it might have been because he worked as a butcher in i think it was wyoming for a while Uh, but there was also a story of a shotgun that was named butch that he had i don't know anyways that's how we got the name butch cassidy he first started uh his criminal career in 1889 Uh, with a bank robbery in Colorado, I think in Telluride. And then he ended up serving prison time for a horse theft in 1894. And it was after he was released from prison for that theft that he founded the Wild Bunch Gang. Which is different from the Hole in the Wall Gang, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff came up where I was just kind of researching other stuff too, and I was kind of confused by Wild Bunch versus Hole in the Wall. So it looks like that there might have been overlap between members of Hole in the Wall and Wild Bunch. That's what it looked like to me, yeah. But that they are two, they're two different things. Okay. But the Wild Bunch gang is the one that has like Harvey Logan, uh, Flatnose Curry. Okay, the, the guys we see at the beginning, News Carter or whatever. They, or News Carter, Carter was, yeah. a, was a Wild Bunch guy. So those are all the guys that we see in the movie. Although in the movie, don't they call themselves the Hole in the Wall gang? Right. I don't think they use the phrase wild bunch. Right. And of course, then what's also ironic is the other movie from 1969. Well, not the other. One of the other movies from 1969 was called The Wild Bunch. And it's like a Western with a bunch of criminals. But apparently that's un- completely unrelated. There's no connection to the Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch. Oh, right. Well, isn't uh, wasn't the Dalton gang from Can- that was they were killed in Kansas? Weren't they called the Wild Bunch? Yeah. Yeah. So it might be something similar. Yeah. Yeah, and that that could also be another uh, studio note thing. Oh, you can't call them the Wild Bunch because right. we got another movie coming out called the Wild Bunch. We, there's another there's another Wild Bunch movie. We're gonna look like hacked. We're gonna look like we're ripping them off. Right. So let's call them the whole. Let's use the whole wall. Yeah. You know, we yeah. don't want to. We don't want to cause confusion. You can't call them the Wild Bunch. Just right. call them the. Was he part of anything else? Oh yeah, he was part of a hole in the wall. All right, cool. Call him the Hole in the Wall Gang. Which is a cooler name anyway. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And, and also it actually refers to, that's an actual place, right? Like the, the yes. hole in the wall is an actual place in Wyoming, like a geographic feature, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a geographic formation. I don't really know how to... Almost look like basically like a pass through, like a, like a plateaued area with like a pass through it. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like a flat, it's like kind of two mountains kind of come, or two uh, ridges kind of come close together, and there's like kind of a funnel, like flat going up to it. Yeah, and there's a gap in between these two big ridges. And so, yes, that that is a a real place in uh, in Wyoming, and that's what they were named after. 
Okay, so yeah, so he founds this Wild Bunch gang. Okay, I, and I was going to pause there and, and start do the early life of... Because it was after the formation of the Wild Bunch gang that he meets the Sundance Kid. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the Sundance Kid, yes. go through his early life, and then we'll talk about them together. So the Sundance Kid, whose real name is Harry Alonzo Longabaugh, was born in Pennsylvania in 1867. He moved out to Colorado at the age of 15 with his brother. So that's how he got out west. He began working as a ranch hand in 1886. So just 19 years old, but then ended up moving to the Black Hills after the winter of 1886 and 1887, killed a bunch of cattle in Colorado. And so a bunch of uh, ranch hands got laid off. Mm. So he didn't have a job anymore. So he moved to the Black Hills, kind of the region, like, think Western South Dakota, Western Nebraska, Eastern Wyoming, Eastern Montana kind of area right there. Right. So that's where he is uh, first arrested. He spends time in jail for stealing a horse, a gun, and a saddle in Sundance, Wyoming. Hmm. That's where he gets the name, the Sundance Kid. I guess the papers referred to him as Kid Longabaugh. And so he took the name Sundance Kid. He was said to be able to get out of handcuffs. Like he knew how to slip them. And actually briefly escaped jail while awaiting trial for that horse and gun theft. But did end up spending, I think, like a year and a half in jail for that crime. He began to participate in train and bank robberies around this time and eventually joined the Wild Bunch. And it's not 100% known which one of those crimes was the first one that he would have done with Butch Cassidy. Oh, right. Because some crimes were mistakenly attributed to them, even though they didn't do them. (laughs) Um, There's also confusion sometimes as to, oh, well, Butch Cassidy probably planned this crime but didn't actually take part in it. or you know, Butch Cassidy planned this crime and took part in it, but Sundance Kid wasn't there. Or maybe he was. You know, it's the evidence is kind of spotty on a lot of that stuff. Uh, one other interesting thing that I have about the Sundance Kid specifically is that accounts do state that he was really quick on the draw. He was a good okay. pistol shooter, but he actually did not have any deaths attributed to him until Bolivia. So that is historically accurate about the the whole because that's a kind of a big plot point in the movie is that he did never, you know, until they get to South America, he had never killed anyone. Right. You know, he had shot a bunch. He was a good shot. He was fast, but he never killed anyone. Um, And that does seem to be historically accurate. At least there's no killings attributed to him. Or wait, I guess, am I remembering it wrong? I I thought it was Butch that said he had never killed anybody in the film. Is it is it actually Sundance? Uh, okay, well, now I'm... Because that is kind of a big difference. Now you're making me second guess because it... I don't... Now now I don't know. I thought it was Sundance. All right, hang on. Let me look. Let me look. Because I guess I I didn't remember it being like a, oh, that's crazy revelation as opposed to like, oh, huh, okay. It's because it's way more impactful. It's a Sundance saying that versus if it's uh, Butch saying that. Oh, you're right. It is. It is Butch. Okay. It is Butch. It almost would have been a cooler moment if... uh, but, but, But to your point historically so it's actually kind of almost a different look on that scene then historically the movie makes it seem like sundance can't believe bush had never killed anybody but you're saying sundance ain't never killed anybody up to that point (laughs) right yeah 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 Yeah. okay yeah and i think it would make because of the way that their characters are portrayed in the movie like their age difference 
it w- it makes it more powerful mm. to show that Butch has never killed anyone because he's the older, more experienced guy. Whereas in real life, if they're only a year apart, you know, and so like if if they make it like, oh, well, Sundance has never killed anyone. It's like, well, yeah, of course, because he's like the young guy. He's like the new the new young buck. Of course, he's never killed anybody. But in real life, they were only a year apart and both had separate criminal careers prior to their escapades together. And neither and neither had probably killed anybody before. Yeah, I don't know about Butch Cassidy. I, I, right. I didn't see anything that said that he did or didn't, which usually means didn't. That's a good point. If murder's not mentioned, it's not implied that you have killed someone. <laughs> right. Well, but other other members of the gang did kill people, though. What I'm saying, though, that and they're probably attributed as such. Like, it's... Yeah. When you apply for a job and you don't put <laughs> a criminal record on there, they're not going to assume you've probably murdered some people. <laughs> uh. Well, not anymore, but maybe in the 1890s it was different. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Good call. <laughs> So, like I said before, not a ton is actually known about their relationship together. While they are kind of historically, like nowadays, they're linked together forever because of the way that their travels and the the way that the end of their life went. But it might have just been kind of a coincidence that they ended up pulling their last job together, and they might not have actually been best friends. But it's also possible, and there's also evidence to show that maybe they worked together as far back as 1889. Five years before the founding of the Wild Bunch at all. Huh. Okay. So, yeah, the film makes it like, hey, I, I, I'm Butch. This is my hetero life mate, Sundance Kid. It's not so much that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, we, we just don't know. Okay. We just don't know. Because there's other, you know, there's other people that say, oh, well, Butch had a different best friend, but he was in jail. So he couldn't have, he couldn't do the, their last bank robbery in Nevada. So he got the Sundance Kid to do it mm. with him. And then it kind of all went, you know. South. South, and then so they skipped the country together just to help each other. It all went okay. south after that, Rich. It all went south. south. They went literally south. <laughs> oh. Is that where that comes from? <laughs> but yeah, so no one no one knows for sure whether or not they were best friends in real life before they went to South America. It's also, like I said, not known for sure which crimes are theirs. Uh, some crimes were similar and therefore attributed to them, even if they weren't there. So like a crime with a similar M.O., they might say, oh, that's that's a Butch Cassidy bank robber, even though he wasn't uh, involved with it at all. Also, just because the Wild Bunch was a gang doesn't mean that they all did everything together, all of their crimes together exclusively. So some members of the gang would carry out robberies without the rest of the gang or on their own or with other gangs and would use similar... MOs in their in those robberies, and then those would get attributed right. to the Wild Bunch, even okay. if it was oh well that was just that was just Flat Nose on his own, yeah, and Harry yeah. Logan, and so but now the whole Wild Bunch gets accused of that entire right, crime, right? And then also, like I said, some heists might have been planned by Cassidy, but not executed by him, but then attributed to him because the planning is so similar. So it's not it's not a hundred percent sure known which of them was at which robbery. What is known is that they left for Argentina in February of 1901 after a bank robbery in Nevada in late 1900. The Pinkertons were hot on their trail, and they actually knew what all five of them looked like. Well, at five of the five of the gang, there were kind of the named ones that we see in that with Flat Nose News and and Harvey plus Bush and Sundance. Right. So in there was a photograph of the five of them taken in Fort Worth, and the, the picture is, it's now a famous picture. You, 
you've probably seen it before if you're into Western history stuff. Oh, just like a picture of the Wild Bunch? Yeah. It's, it, the picture is called the Fort Worth Five, and it's it's Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, Ben Kirkpatrick, uh, okay. Harvey Logan, and Flatnose Curry. Back when criminals wore suits. Oh, yeah. They're, they're all looking. They're just dressed to the nines. They've got their little pocket watches on. They got the cool hats. So they went and took this picture, you know, because at the time that was, you know, kind of a flex, to be honest, to go get your picture oh, taken okay. with the boys. Well, oh, then the Pinkertons now have that picture. Yeah, right. The Pinkertons now knew what all five of them looked like, <laughs> which was a way bigger deal in 1900 than it is today. Right. You could walk right by the police in 1900 if they hadn't have, didn't have your picture. Right. And may, right. Maybe they had a sketch of you, you know, right, an artist right. rendering. But now they had they actually they can put your actual picture on a wanted poster. Mm. And so that turned out to kind of be a mistake. So the Pinkertons <laughs> were hot on the trail and they flee to South America. They bought a ranch in Argentina and actually tried to go straight for a little while. Uh-huh. So that's they leave that out of the movie altogether. Yeah, they f- and they f- they fled with Etta just like they show in the movie. Okay. Who by the way, I don't know, did you do any did you look into her at all? Uh, not really. Okay, she's like a a, a mystery in in a in herself. Oh, huh. No one knows what her real name is because her name is Etta, but that was her she actually went by Ethel, but Etta was the name that was given to her paper because of a misprint in a Pinkerton memo. Huh. Place, the last name Place is actually the Sundance Kids mom's maiden name. So no one knows what her real last name is. No one knows for sure where she's from because some people said she was born in Texas. Other times she said that she was born in the Northeast somewhere. No one knows what she did for a living. Some people said she was a prostitute. Some said she was a teacher. There's like all these conflicting reports of who she is, where she came from, what she did. And then when they're in South America, one day she just disappears. Huh. So anyway, she she goes with them. They go to South America. The Sundance Kid and... I'll just call her Etta, because we don't know where her real name is, but in the movie, her name's Etta. Yeah. Sundance Kid and Etta actually came back to the U.S. twice, once in 1902 oh, and huh. once in 1904. So the movie definitely simplifies all that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They went to Coney Island on one of their trips, and they also went to the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. That's so bizarre. And the Pinkertons were the Pinkertons were chasing them the whole time, but they were like managed to stay one step ahead and then get back to Argentina. Not Bolivia yet. Right, not Bolivia yet. Huh. So this is where I'm where I'm saying, like, I understand why they cut a lot of this, you know, for time. So he's insisting on this historical accuracy that he did not include as far as Goldman goes. Yeah. And I think this is the more interesting story, to be honest, like them on the run. You don't just start it, start it with this. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Start it, start it with the with them, go, you know, fleeing to Argentina and then have it be them like, you know, doing these kind of ballsy trips back to the U.S. I don't know. I just hmm. I think that would be. That'd be kind of a fun movie. Right. So there was a uh, a bank robbery in Argentina near where they were in 1905, where it was two, you know, gringos, two white guys robbed a bank. It probably wasn't them. It probably was two other American guys that were in Argentina at the same time. But it was blamed on them because uh, the Pinkertons knew that they were in Argentina. They just couldn't get the Pinkerton agency to spend the money to send the Pinkerton agents to Argentina to mm. go get them. So the Pinkertons knew that where they generally where they were. After this bank robbery, though, the Pinkertons say, hey, uh, you know, Argentine authorities, it was probably these two guys, issue arrest warrants for them and go get them. 
and then can we have them after? So they get these arrest warrants issued, but they were warned in advance that they had warrants out for their arrest, so they leave their ranch. Butch and Sundance were both identified by witnesses in a bank robbery in December of 1905, along with Etta and some other white guy hmm. whose uh, identity is unknown. Some people think it was Harvey Logan, even though he was supposed to have been dead, but also that might not have been Harvey Logan that was killed by the posse in the States. It might have been somebody else, and so it could have been Harvey Logan, maybe, but uh, no one knows for sure who this third mystery guy was. Wait, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, not to, you know, we're always about side notes here, but uh, you talk about how if you didn't have your picture taken, it's hard for the police to find you. Well, then even then, if they have a corpse, they, they don't, they can't identify a corpse back right. then. If you didn't have someone who, or, or even if you have a witness, that person could be lying. Like, it's just, it's just it really yes. was the Wild West back in the Wild West. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's so hard to to verify any of this stuff because yeah it's just everything is a mystery (laughs) so some reports said that the woman who is probably etta was wounded during this robbery and her whereabouts after the robbery are unknown she doesn't show up again in the historical record after this bank robbery in december of 1905 i love the idea and this is just my writer mind i guess i love the idea like oh obviously etta is a time traveler (laughs) (laughs) who just went back to hang out with a couple of handsome outlaws and then kind right. of just dipped right back on to wherever she came from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe she had the, uh, the boom box playing yeah, yeah, exactly. magic carpet ride by, exactly. by Steppenwolf. Shameless plug for, for your book there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, after this robbery, they do have a few like actual straight, like legal jobs, but would regularly disappear from those jobs. <laughs> For periods of time where coincidentally a crime would happen. <laughs> mm. Well, we see them try to go straight in the film where they try to like, hey, we'll just uh, escort this. This guy's hiring us to ironically protect him from uh, protect the payroll from robbers. So he hires two robbers to protect it because he didn't realize that's who they are or whatever. And then right. And then that guy gets gunned down and they're like, well, at some point, it's just easier to be criminals, apparently. Right. Yeah. So. They do try to go straight, but also are doing crimes, and then they end up robbing a mine payroll. Oh, similar to the film, other than they don't necessarily ever rob it in the film. Right. Well, I guess I should say they were in the area at the same time that two Americans robbed a, a mine payroll in 1908. Huh. As that's, I'll, I'll, I'll right, put it right. that way. So people in a nearby town thought that the two Americans... The two Americans in a nearby house were the robbers. Okay. So a small force, it's not like it's shown in the movie. In the movie, it's like a, a whole battalion of Bolivian soldiers shows up to get these guys. Oh, which I thought was so cool. That's not the case? <laughs> in the real life, it was four guys. Ah, so because even the guy, even the general that shows up in the film was like, two men, like, what the heck did you call us here for? And then it's like, no, but it's the, it's the Benitos Gringos. <gasps> yeah. and then like he's right. like basically gets a whole whole battalion in place which oh right. man i'm almost kind of disappointed that wasn't how it really went down because like, oh man that makes the whole like final moment way less iconic did, ah. did not oh did not happen like that at all ah. did not happen like that at all That's so disappointing ah dang okay. so it's four guys that show up three cavalry soldiers and a police officer they Surround the house and begin taking gunfire from inside the house. One of the soldiers is killed. 
The group shoots back. Um, they hear shouting from inside and then two gunshots and then silence. When they make entry into the house, there's two bodies found. So two white guys are found, one with a bunch of gunshot wounds in his arm and one gunshot wound in his forehead, the other guy with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his temple. The story being one of them got shot up, is mortally wounded, guy one shoots guy two. Puts him out of his misery. Puts him out of his misery and then offs himself. The guy who was wounded is supposedly the Sundance Kid. The guy who shot himself was Butch Cassidy. Oh, and they whoever it was in the house was for sure the robbers because they had the money from the mine payroll in their saddlebags. Okay. Now, all that being said, the general descriptions of the two guys do match Robert Parker and... Longabaugh. Harry Longabaugh. But there was no... Post-worn picture? Conclu- well, obviously no picture, but no conclusive identification that would be a 100% you know, positive ID for these two guys. So it's not like, oh yeah, you know, uh, Butch Cassidy had a, you know, a tattoo on his arm and this corpse has a tattoo, the same tattoo, so it's, it's him. It was two white guys, similar build, similar height, that were in the same area, so that's the description. Now... The time frame and the robbery MO do match Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and there were no witnesses placing them anywhere else in the world or anywhere else in the area at the time that this robbery took place. Also, letters from the both of them both stopped after that day. But... (laughs) But no evidence has conclusively shown that those two guys were Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So... After they were killed, those two guys, they were labeled as unknowns on their death certificates. Oh. And then buried in a cemetery. Now, they know where the cemetery is, but it's so old and so crowded, and the records are not the best, that they don't know which graves are theirs. And they also don't know if they even have graves or if they were buried, like, outside the cemetery in an unmarked grave, but they just put that that's where they're buried. They've done DNA testing on, like, several of those graves that have been inconclusive as to whether it's actually Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or not. Huh. So it's not known whether those were the actual guys they were actually killed or if two Americans got killed and they took it as, hey, everyone thinks those two guys are us. We've been trying to go straight this whole time anyway. Let's disappear. Let's just use this as an opportunity to disappear. Change our names. Go back to the U.S. And we do know of other people, other Americans robbing stuff in South America, like you mentioned with the Argentina thing, where he just kind of got blamed on them. Right, yeah. right. There were other Americans that were doing robberies in South America at the same time, and there were people later on in like the early to mid 20th century in the U.S. that claimed, oh yeah, this guy that I knew, that's the Sundance Kid. Or like, hey, my dad told me he was the Sundance Kid. And they have done... DNA testing on some of those guys as well, also inconclusive. (laughs) Like one of them was, they had a guy who they believed was a distant relative of the Sundance kid, and they had a grave of another guy who they were going to do DNA testing on, and the DNA didn't match, but the way that the coffin was, there was water that had leaked in that might have been contaminated with DNA from other corpses in the same cemetery, so maybe it wasn't the right DNA, maybe it was contaminated. They just don't know. They just don't know. And you could argue it was in the 
Pinkerton agency's best interest to be able to say case closed. Right. And meaning like meaning this was them because it's just more convenient if we can say, yep, that's taken care of. They're they're dead. And we'll just move on. Right. And let everyone believe that. Yeah. And it's all it's in the Pinkerton's best interest and it's in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids' best interest, if it wasn't them, to just keep their mouth shut, change their name, and just go back to life as usual. Just use it as an opportunity to start over. My instinct would be there's still probably an 80% chance it was them. But I love that we don't know and that there is a fair, a not insignificant chance that it wasn't them. That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're still alive today. <laughs> right. Are you, are you the Sundance Kid? <laughs> <laughs> it honestly, it leaves open an old Henry situation yes way more realistically so than that one way more than billy the kid actually does right right that one's not possible basically but this one's possible yeah huh i'm i'm loving the story possibilities for this too how is no one else man i won't seem surprised of course we got the amazing ending in the film already it's one of the best parts of the film right but man there's almost a whole other potential story there where they do get away with it and we do see these other guys getting gunned down and that we can almost maybe even have butch and sundance plant some of their art uh some of their stuff on these guys like oh well yeah he's got this old uh wallet that we know was butch's so this must be them right and like that would be and then they just go off into the sunset that's almost kind of a cooler ending okay there's also theories that it wasn't two guys that robbed the place, that it was actually three, and that one of the guys that escaped, that the Sundance kid, I don't know why him specifically, but one of the guys might have escaped during the night, and it was actually only two of the three that were found dead, and that one of them got away. Which that might also be like a, oh yeah, like we, you know, we robbed robbed this uh, payroll with like another guy or two other guys, and so now uh. we're gonna, you know... Make one of them look like me. Yeah. Like, I, I can just imagine the scene at the end of the movie. Like, hey, man, I'm not going anywhere. You know, give me your give me your hat and uh, and your guns and like, you know, your some other memorabilia that they're going to think is is you. And, and like, just get out of here. They don't know that it's you. I don't know. It, it could be a really cool, a cool story. But I don't think it'll ever happen because this movie is so iconic. And not only is the movie so iconic. The best and most iconic part of the movie is that final scene where they charge out and freeze frame, you know, fade to sapia tone with all the with all the gunshot audio. You can't have that be how everyone knows Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and say, hey, guess what? We're making a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid too. They're like, what are you talking about? These guys, <laughs> everyone knows what happened to them. I saw the movie. You wouldn't do it. wouldn't be a sequel, but you could do a reimagining. Well, right. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, or I like the idea, too, of maybe if, you know there's a third guy, and maybe it's one or the other. So it's like the Sundance kid gets shot up, Butch puts him out of his misery, and then just straight up kills the other guy, the last witness, and then he goes off into the Oh, okay, make himself. it like a devious thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's so cool with it. Like, Sundance kid was put out of misery, but the other guy's like, you're just the last loose end. And then right. Butch is just goes off. I'm going to escape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then maybe yeah, like I said, puts puts something of his uh, on that guy, and then everyone assumes it's it's the both of them. 
No, that's, man, that's, uh, it's always interesting when sometimes the real life story is more interesting. Because William Goldman spent eight years researching this story and writing the script. And so it's just like, yeah. And he's, he is obviously a great writer, but I also feel like, man, did he actually find the best story that was here in this, in all this stuff? I, I wonder if he was like, man, these guys did so much stuff, but it's also not a hundred percent known for sure which stuff they did and which stuff they didn't do. Right. So I'm just going to pick the cool stuff that I like Fair. and make them do that in my story. And that's his prerogative as, as the writer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying right. I wouldn't be surprised if that's after eight years of researching it, if he was like, oh man, like I can kind of just make these, I can make these guys do just like all the cool stuff that they were said to have done. Random, the only other note I kind of took, so the we mentioned the bad guys wearing suits and, and everybody just kind of like dressed differently back then. and. Oh, I, I kind of have several thoughts on that. It's like one, every, everyone, you know, pre World War II, or even ah, shoot, even even probably pre nineteen sixty, this kind of looked cool in photographs because everyone was always dressed so nice. And so, while I am someone who prefers to just wear shorts and a t shirt all the time, there's something that's kind of lost. Like if you just look like obviously random people in the nineties, ugh, look like slobs versus random people in the nineteen thirties just because of how everyone mm. kind of dresses almost too casually or I, I don't even know how to say it, it but it, but also yeah. just, and how it has just been a cultural shift. And like, so I heard stories, say my great grandpa Simmons, who would, would have been like a farmer in Oklahoma about this exact same time, you know, 1890s, early 1900s that he's just a farmer. But then when the farmer gets done, with a day's work and you got to go into town to even just like get the mail or, or go grocery shopping, you'd put on a suit. You would right. clean up from the farm, put on a suit. Well, what's the occasion? Well, I'm going to town. Yeah. <laughs> that was the occasion. I don't know. It's just a, a different, a different approach to, I don't know how people saw themselves. And obviously it was very much, you know, that whole yes, ma'am, no ma'am time and calling everybody Mr. So-and-so. And I, I just, uh, I don't know, just a interesting cultural shift. I don't really have a point other than, uh, I guess, that comment. Yeah, an, an inter- a cultural shift and one that I think is not a good one. I'm not saying that we need to necessarily, like... No, it's right. I'm kind of torn. It's, go back all the yeah. way to that. Like, all, like, you have to put on a suit to go grocery shopping. But, like, <laughs> man, at least go, like, just take a little bit more, you know pride in yourself just be take yourself a little more seriously people you know maybe that's it maybe that's it i'm almost like i I want everyone else to do that but i don't want to have to put on a suit (laughs) (laughs) so what i thought was kind of interesting is there's a sneaky candidate for most interesting person in american history that is mentioned but not seen in this film and it's mr e.h harriman I work for Mr. E.H. Harriman. Oh, the road, the railroad boss. Yes, yes. So yeah. I, I did a, I did a little research on E.H. Harriman. Well, first I was just trying to figure out if he was a real guy. And not only is he a real guy, he might be the most interesting person mentioned in this film. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, okay, it's hard to beat Bush and Sundance, obviously. But so E.H. Harriman was uh, an actual trained employee. He keeps, he always keeps getting cited to comical effect and. Butch even kind of says, like, hey, this is just some rich guy who wouldn't wouldn't fight for you. Why are you fighting for him? And why are you willing to get, we're going to blow up this safe. We don't want to hurt you, but 
if you're in our way, we're not going to protect you. So the actual EA chairman is very much kind of this, uh, I always kind of use the term a Randian hero, where you kind of got this rags the richest capitalist person. So he quit school at 14 to start working on Wall Street. And this is all in the you know late 1800s here, because again, he's a contemporary of these guys, probably a little older since he's the, the rich guy. So yeah, starts working at Wall Street at 14, uh, gets married, and then his father-in-law is a railroad guy. So that kind of has the connection to the railroad through his father-in-law, has this Wall Street backing where he's kind of built up over the course of his late teens, early 20s, got some money. So he made a, a couple investments where he would buy like a rundown, not making any money railroad company and was able to turn it around. And so Harriman kind of was the guy who could take a dead railroad company and make it profitable again and kind of made his fortune essentially uh doing this and so 18 year, oh 18 years later so i guess yeah he was that would have been more i guess like 60s and 70s so i wrote 18 years later now in 1897 so yeah now he's probably you know in his 40s he becomes the director of the union pacific railroad which is the specific railroad uh, we see them robbing in the film so that that's accurate that he would have been the guy uh, in charge of that railroad and there's also some ties to uh, last time with the, with the gold rush because uh, Harriman also financed an exploration into Alaska. Hmm. He was kind of just stressed out and not in the best of health. So his doctor suggested he take a break from all the railroad business stuff. And so his idea of a break in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s is, well, I'm going to go hunt bears in Alaska. And because he was really wealthy, he took a bunch of scientists with him. And so there's actually this big like... Harriman Alaska expedition uh, in 1899. So basically, like the exact same time that Bush and Sundance are robbing his trains, uh, he's off in Alaska. So definitely not caring about what this employee is is doing to protect his interests. Apparently, he's wealthy enough too that like some people even suggested that he might be willing to buy Alaska from the United States, which I thought seemed like a, a stretch. But just to kind of give an idea of uh, how well off this guy might have been. The, the science side, though, of this whole trip to Alaska proved very fruitful. So they actually discovered 600 new species on this Harriman Alaska expedition. And one of, the, one of the people along with his entourage was John Muir, like the famous, I don't know, he's just kind of considered a naturalist, but like just like one of the big national parks advocates and photographers and stuff was John Muir. He was with Harriman's uh, trip here. And then... Uh, Harriman also got into jujitsu <laughs> when he visited Japan in 1905. That's so awesome. He even brought back a bunch of like jujitsu Japanese guys with him to the U.S. and just like, was like was big into jujitsu late in his life. So I'm looking at the the Wikipedia page right here. Yeah, one of the guys that he brought back to the U.S. is Mitsuyo Maeda. Oh, and I don't know that name. He's the Japanese guy that did jiu-jitsu who taught Carlos Gracie, the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, how to do jiu-jitsu. Like, he's the guy that brought jiu-jitsu from Japan to Brazil. Ah, okay. And, that, and, and that's one of the guys that Harriman brought back? Yeah. Okay. That's one of the guys that Harriman brought to the U.S. to do these exhibitions. Huh. Yeah. You would never guess that there's a, basically a tide... We're doing our six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing here, but you can get from Butch Cassidy to modern MMA in w competitions with yeah. uh, about two steps. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, anyway, and then and then Harriman died in 1909. But I, again, I so yeah, he's not as interesting as Bush and Sundance. But I just thought it was cool that one, he was real. Two, he has ties to Alaska. The jujitsu thing I thought was crazy. But yeah, just kind of a rich railroad guy, and, and also kind of a rags to riches uh, story. Actually, I should mention too, the, the Union Pacific Railroad was established in uh, 1862 during the Civil War, basically just to maintain railroad lines in the Union because obviously that was a huge advantage if those lines were well maintained. That would help in the war effort. And then after the war, the Union Pacific ran a line connecting Iowa to Utah to join some existing lines together. So it was actually the Union Pacific Railroad that completed the transcontinental. You can now take a train from the East Coast to the West Coast in the 1860s. uh, 1869 was when that was completed. And that was Union Pacific kind of filling in those last pieces that needed to be done to make that happen. The specific train line or whatever that the Bush and Sundance uh, did rob was, and they mentioned in the film, is the Overland Flyer. So that, that is a real specific train. And it actually was operated by multiple companies. So like if it was oh, out east, it might be under someone else's jurisdiction. But when it was in kind of between Ogden, Utah and Omaha, Nebraska, that's when it was under the purview of Union Pacific. It was a car that was in service from 1887, so fairly new, I guess, when these guys were robbing it. And then it actually was in service until 1963. But yeah, not sure if they've robbed it multiple times, but it was robbed at least once by uh, Butch and Sundance. Joe, they mentioned uh, Joe LaFors as being a guy that they were worried about like being with that Pinkerton group. And that is a real person. But again, they kind of just exaggerate his mystique in the film. Basically, all we know is he was a real lawman. He did deal with the Hole in the Wall gang, but that's essentially it. They just took a real name mm. and then made it kind of the boogeyman. They're like, oh, no, is that LaFour's? And so, like, he didn't have any of that kind of reputation. It was just a name that you could use and put in there. Okay, yes, that's probably all we're going to do for today. We will have, again, if you haven't been listening to the last couple of episodes, we do now have a Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash historyandfilm, uh, one, you could have listened to this episode early if you hadn't already. Two, we will have some more side notes here. So we have a couple other random things. Actually, I'm going to talk about Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford themselves. And maybe a couple other things we'll talk about over there. Kind of each time we'll just maybe have a little extra time. Because these these episodes have started going long and it, it's, it's almost kind of better if we don't include everything. So we will include some of those extra things uh, over there on our Patreon. Beyond that, here on the regular feed... Stay tuned next time, and we'll be getting to the hunt for oil in Paul Thomas Anderson's modern classic, There Will Be Blood. <laughs>